If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, once again. Uh, the second sermon uh, from the text that we looked at last week. Uh, we'll look at once more today. Ephesians, chapter 2. We'll read in just a moment, verses 1 through 10. What's in your wallet? Don't rush for the exits, folks. This is not a sermon on tithing, not a building campaign drive. Most of us have some familiarity. We recognize that as the ubiquitous part of an advertising campaign for a financial institution, a bank. My favorite episode, of course, starring our beloved Chuck, the round mound of rebound. Charles Barkley, native of Leeds, Alabama, by way of that great university of Auburn. The, the question, though, is built upon what I would say are some correct presuppositions or assumptions, that it matters because it is necessary that we have a bank. Now, I understand you can go out and live in the wilderness and, you know, do away with all kinds of modern contrivances such as banks, but as we would speak normally, you need a bank. You need, you need a bank that when you go put your paycheck in it week to week and you look at your balance the next day, that, that what it reflects as your balance is consistent with what you deposited. You need to be able to trust them. So it is. It's, it's a very significant question. There are a lot of important questions in life. And sometimes you start having to make these decisions at really very young ages. You, 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 you don't really have the experience and the insight that you need to make decisions that are going to be consequential for the rest of your life. Some of you younger people are thinking about relationships. Who are you going to date? Maybe more importantly, who are you not going to date? Maybe you're making decisions even in middle school about what kind of classes you're going to take. Should, should I go to college? It's an important decision. Where you should go to college? What classes? What, what major? You start thinking about what job I'm going to take. Who am I going to marry? Very important questions. People that are approaching my age. Are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? What Medicaid Advantage plan are you going to get? Oh, like my head's still spinning. I still don't understand it. Yeah. Important questions. But there's one ultimate question. One ultimate question. In fact, as important and as crucial as all of these questions are, and as your pastor, 
for the most part, I'll be glad to help you to kind of filter through all of the noise and help you with some of these decisions. I can't make them for you, but they're important. Please don't hear me say there's nothing else that matters. But I'm telling you that that which ultimately matters is the answer to this question. What must I do to be saved? That is the ultimate question. And if you do not get it right, if you do not get it right, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters at the end of the day. We absolutely must get it right. And it's interesting that... To my knowledge, the only place in the Bible that that particular question is phrased in that particular way is in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 30, and we looked at that a few months back, where the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, again, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul gave the emphatic answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, again, there's some implications here that the first thing is you need to be saved. If you don't hear anything else that I say to you today, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not been born again, if you have not been converted, you need to be saved. That is the ultimate issue in your life right now. So, the implications are that you need your sins forgiven, that, that we would desire to not spend an eternity in hell, that we would desire to go to heaven. A straightforward question and a, a simple answer to the ultimate question. And I, I love being straightforward and simple. We, you hear me say sometimes, I desire in the sermon simplicity, accuracy, and clarity. That, that's what I strive for each week, to, to absolutely zero in and communicate clearly. What does it mean to be saved? Who or what are we saved from? And here's the really the important question I want to drill down into today. What does it mean to believe? Or what does it mean to have faith? Now, I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it till I can't say it anymore, that I'm convinced that the most misunderstood and miscommunicated doctrine in the church today I'm not saying it's the only one, but I think it's the most fundamental, the most essential issue that is so often miscommunicated is what faith actually is or what it means to savingly believe. I think it's so, mis it's so often, it is so often substituted for something else, something that is less than faith. Substituted for things like making a decision and praying a prayer. Things that ultimately would be proven to be inaccurate and ingenuine in the end. You want and you demand the truth. You demand that you get the biblical, the accurate answer. Imagine this in some other kind of realms. 
You walk into the building this morning, and you say, Brother Tim, I was driving in this morning, and there was a red light that came on on my dash. And that red light had like an icon on it that looked like a thermometer, and it was bright red. Can you tell me what that means and what I should do about it? I say, listen, my feelings are this. Just ignore it. It'll eventually go away. And it will not bother you anymore. Just that's what I feel. That's that's how that's that's what I believe. Just just ignore that. It's just a red light. I mean, my goodness, how how bad can a red light hurt you? Oh, it'll resolve itself. When your car is on fire on the side of the road, it, yeah, the red light will be off all right. Or how about this? You go to your mailbox tomorrow, and you get a letter. And you look up there on the return address, and it says, Internal Revenue Service. And all our hearts just drop. And it says... We're sorry to inform you, but you miscalculated on your most recent tax return, and you owe us $324.97. And brother, you bring me the letter. Brother Tim, I just got this, and it, it looks really official and important. And what should I do? I tell you what I do. Just throw it in the garbage. I mean, that's what I feel like you should do with those things. I mean, it's the government, after all. And, and here's the thing. Throw it in the garbage. I mean, they're so incompetent. They'll, never, they'll, they'll forget they sent you the first letter. And if they throw you a second letter, throw it in the garbage. <laughs> I wish I hadn't heard that. <laughs> but that's how I feel. Is that a good answer. I mean, it may be kind of sympathetic. You're really upset about your red light, and maybe I can comfort you because, you know, I've got that kind of voice. I just comfort you when I talk to you. I just comfort you to say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that letter from the IRS. Just ignore it. Not very good, not very accurate information. Indeed, the Bible speaks with clarity about this issue. And we must be diligent. We must be sober and we must be serious to, be, to dig in, to, to, be, to be sure that we understand what it means to believe unto salvation, to receive by God's grace through faith this great gift of eternal life, the gift of the forgiveness of our sins. So let's explore this today. Let's think about what it means. Are we right? When we celebrate, when we affirm, when we confess that we're saved through faith alone. Read with me. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among 
whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Father, may we understand with great clarity and great conviction what you mean by what you say. I pray, God, that we would grasp this great truth, that we would be able to discern in our own lives and even to help others as we seek to guide them towards what this reality of the new birth, of salvation is, we may be able to instruct and lead toward this great experience of your grace that is received through faith and faith alone. Help us to hear and to understand here today. In Jesus' name, amen. We see once again in our text, I emphasized last week the necessity of grace, that God must take the initiative, that God must impart to us the very power and principle of life. And in doing that, in doing this through the working of his Holy Spirit, a work that comes through us through the proclamation of the gospel, the imperishable seed of the new birth, it is because he has done this in us and for us that uh, we come to believe. I, I, I thought of a, a kind of an illustration this morning. Some of our younger ladies have started baking homemade bread. Now, my wife gets upset when I beg for pound cakes and brownies and things like it. And this is kind of a begging for homemade bread, but just forgive me for that. But, but it's really, really good, okay? And as I understand it, the, these ladies have to keep something called yeast. It's, it's a leaven. I didn't know it. It, it. Yeast is a fungus. That doesn't sound very tasty, does it? You need some fungus in your bread. Yeah. But here's the thing. It's a living agent that must be incorporated into the flour. Okay? And then you, uh, you leave that doughy mix, and it rises, and then it's prepared to be baked. Is the way I understand it, I think. Now, here's the thing. You hear me say sometimes the proof's in the pudding. How do you know if you've got two lumps of dough and you put them aside and you say, I'm going to wait for them to rise so that I can bake them for bread, 
how do you know which one has the yeast? The living agent in it. The one that what? That rises. The one that rises, that exhibits the characteristics of life within it. Who is it that believes unto salvation? Who is it that believes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the one that has had the living yeast of the imperishable seed of the new birth. It is planted in them. It comes to life. They have the power to believe the gospel. And it is a power, if you'll pardon me, an experience that they can't ever give it, get over. They, they unfailingly, and as a practical thing, I know you could probably put yeast in a lump of dough and it might not rise, but as a practical thing, yeast never produces to do what yeast does, makes the dough rise. I can promise you this, the yeast of Almighty God, the yeast of the work of regeneration will never fail to produce the reality of genuine saving faith, okay? And so this grace is directed and applied to us in the working of regeneration. And what does the regenerate heart do? By definition, it believes. It believes unto salvation. It believes the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you know that you've believed in this way, this gift of God produces good works. You don't do good works to earn your faith or your grace or your salvation. But the daily living proof that the principle of life has been imparted to you, that you have the yeast of the Spirit of God working, permeating, influencing every avenue of your life, is the work that flows out of you, that, that it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, one of the things, and I laugh sometimes, and I've told you this before, I get a lot of labels and have over the years, and, and one of them is fundamentalist. And sometimes what, they, what people mean by that is, it's a very pejorative, you're a mean-spirited, not too smart, kind of backwoods, you know, kind of a hick type of guy. That, that's what they mean when they, you know, it's, again, a very negative, pejorative thing. I wear it as a badge of honor. Because when you say fundamentalist, I think there are essential things that you've got to believe in order to be a Christian. And if you don't believe those essential things, you're not a Christian, okay? And, and, and even in life, there are some basic fundamentals that if you'll embrace them, life will tend to go pretty well. Let me, young people, y'all listening, just, just listen. For, I'm going to give you three fundamental principles for life, okay? And those of you that manage people in here, I'd like a real hearty amen, okay, when I say these. But th these are three principles that you can live by, and they will work in any context. Be on time, be prepared, and be kind. And all God's people said... I mean, those are three fundamental things. They'll work. Now, that's not everything you need to know about life. But that, and like I said, I just, I'm just one of these people. I just like things simple. I just like, just give me some fundamental things that, 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 that will work. And folks, those 
will work. And so same thing in the Christian faith. There are really, I'm not saying that the fundamentals are the only things, but they're the, they're the most necessary things. They're the essential things. And it is so dangerous to get out of kilter when it comes to the fundamentals. When I started playing golf, first book I read by Ben Hogan, The Five Modern Fundamentals of Golf. Still got it, still look back at it occasionally. And, and here, this is the crazy thing about golf. You've you got to master the fundamentals. Do you know what determines if I hit the ball well or not? The first 12 inches of my swing. Every single time. If I can move that club head the first 12 inches right, everything else will fall into place. That's a fact. That's a fundamental. It's a simple reality, and it's hard to do. Trust me. I hit about enough balls sideways, I know. But what I'm saying is that is true of most any endeavor that you're involved with, any athletic endeavor, any academic endeavor, any artistic endeavor. They're just some fundamental things that you have to master and embrace. And again, as we often say when it comes to biblical things, they must master you. Now, in the course of my spiritual journey, and I would go back to my pre-conversion days, and that's a long time ago, okay? Almost 50 years now. But even going back to my pre-conversion days, having grown up in the church, I knew a little of the lingo. I knew a little bit of the jargon. I knew a little bit of the Bible story. If you'd ask me, what must I do to be saved? I can imagine... Church member in good standing, lost as a ball in high weeds, 10-year-old Tim Evans giving you an answer. Did you get all of that? Okay? I've told you before. I walked down an aisle. I didn't do anything. I didn't even think I even signed a card. Went down the aisle twice, in fact. Baptized. Lost as one of my golf balls. Couldn't, FBI couldn't find that kid. Lost. But if you'd asked me the question... You know what I would have said because this is the language I heard. You got to walk down that aisle. You 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 got to you got to go down front. You got to make a profession of faith. You need to make that decision. Probably at some juncture you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to pray to receive Christ. You need to pray that prayer of faith. I, I never will forget, not long after I walked that aisle and went down front, I was at my grandmother's visitation for her funeral, sitting in the lobby of Irwin Pettit Funeral Home, right there on Highway 27, Pinville, Georgia, USA. And one well-meaning meaning deacon comes over. Tim, we were just so proud of you when you walked that aisle. I've been walking those aisles for 10 years now. I mean, um, I mean why, why, why do we use such euphemisms? Why, I mean, now that's what I, maybe y'all didn't grow up with that. But that, that, that was just the way that we talked about this great reality of being saved. And, and I've said this, this is not new, this is old stuff. I mean, when you talk to somebody, even if you talk to your child, if they begin to be concerned about the status of their soul, why not use the biblical terminology and apply, explain it biblically that you must be born again. 
and explain what that means and how that happens. Talk to them about you must be converted and what that means. Define that for them. Speak to them about you must believe the gospel. You must repent of your sin. Use those words and define them. Why don't we get into this business of using this language that at least in my mind is incredibly misleading, incredibly difficult to scatter. And I've watched people for 60 plus years now and they've done all of this stuff. They've walked their aisles, and they've signed their cards, and they've prayed their prayers, and they've raised their hands, and been baptized, and, and they're living like pagans. And particularly in my early days, when I was converted, and I looked at this, I said, what's going on here? What? 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 I thought they were Christians, and yet, they act like this, and they talk like this, and they do this and do that. And so I ultimately and finally, no credit to myself at all, because I sure wasn't looking for salvation. I promise you I wasn't. I've told you before, I was more sure to be saved before I was saved than after I was saved. Think about that one for just a minute. I mean, I never thought about it. And again, I've never seen this in print, but Spurgeon is credited with saying, you know, how do you know if you're of the elect or how do you know if you're saved? Well, if you're worried about it, you probably are. Now, I don't know if he said that or not, but that's kind of true. If you're worried about it, I never thought about it. Never was concerned. So after my conversion, I began to search the Scriptures. Imagine somebody that has been born again of the imperishable seed of the new birth, has been sealed with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden began to read their Bible. You ever heard of that happening to anybody before? I just, I was trying to figure it out. I had questions and I had answers coming from, you name it. I couldn't figure it out. I, 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 the, the, the teachers and, and the preachers and my experience and my observations I even read Billy Graham's book, and I was more frustrated and more confused than I ever was. Just imagine, there are probably three really straightforward passages in our Bible that deal with this issue, what must I do to be saved, that we could go to, okay? The first one is found in Matthew 19, 16. You don't have to turn there. We often refer to it as the, the, the story or the account of the rich young ruler. And so he asked a question that's pretty much synonymous with the question I ask. What must I do to be saved? He comes to Jesus. I mean, hey, buddy. <laughs> it's, one th I, it's one thing to ask Tim Evans, and I'm, I'm pretty insightful. I'll just tell you that. But to be able to ask Jesus, good master, what, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life. We, we find a similar question at Pentecost, and Peter has just indicted everyone standing there that God has sent to you the promised Messiah, and you murdered him. But God raised him up from the dead because it was according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And as he preached that, it says they were cut to the heart, and they asked this question, what must we do? Peter said, 
Well, I'll get back to what Peter said. And then we find this passage we've already referred to, Acts 16. The question to the Philippian jailer. So we have, if you want three authorities on what must I do to be saved, obviously Jesus is the ultimate authority. Paul and Peter, or Peter and Paul, would be, they would be a distant second, but they would be second, right? We agree? Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Peter preached on Pentecost, repent and be baptized. And Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, to my 15-year-old mind, that looked like three different answers. I'll just be fair with you. I don't, I don't, I can't figure this deal out. I mean, no, wait a minute. How do I, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Sell everything you got. I've never known anybody to do that. I've known a few people that claim they repented and were baptized. I've known a few that says they believe. But there, those are three seemingly to me incredibly different answers. And that left me, as is sometimes said, with a dilemma wrapped in a paradox, shrouded in a mystery that yields a conundrum. And my conundrum persisted for about 20 years. I couldn't figure it out. Read, asked, listened, watched. I really just could not figure it out. And it, what do we have? Do we have what ultimately is a, just an indecipherable collection of answers, and we're forced to be like the Corinthians? Well, I follow Jesus. Well, I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Paul. You know, okay, just pick which one, you know. Hey, we're Americans. We know we're not going to pick the Jesus answer, okay? We're not going to sell everything and give it to the poor. So that's out. So option B or C, right? Well, we need the right answers. So I told you last week, one of the things that we neglect is how those that have gone before us, how they have offered insight and help and aid to understanding what the Bible means by what it said. I was messing with a friend of mine who doesn't go to this church this week. And uh, I said, well, well, you're Baptist. I know you don't know anything about church history. He said, ooh, ouch. I said, well, you know, hey, it's the way it is. You know? We're Baptist, and we know very little. And so, you know, it, is it indecipherable? Was Luther, and I, I so resonate with Luther. I mean, this thing drove me crazy for 20 years. Drove me to the very pits of despair. I mean, now, again, I've told you, I never had any doubt about the objective truth of the gospel, of the Word of God. Never. That was never a problem for me. My problem was, had God saved me? Did I believe? Did, did I believe enough? Was I, did I have a strong enough faith to hold on to Jesus tight enough that he could just barely get me into heaven? Yeah. It's kind of what Luther was into. I mean, kind of a, but he just struggled. I mean, he was just virtually insane. 
until a, a bomb went off in his heart and his mind, until the yeast of God's Holy Spirit came alive in his life. And he discovered the great truth that we read previously, that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. If he was not right, then maybe the medieval church, the Catholic church, maybe, maybe they were right and they're still right that, that in order for us to be saved, we need to appropriate a mixture of faith and works and receive the sacraments and all of this stuff and maybe God's grace will be operative in my life. Maybe they're right. If Luther wasn't right, maybe they are. Or maybe the later, <laughs> I hate to call them reformers, but members of the restoration movement from which we get the Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, the Seventh-day Adventists, they came out of this 19th century movement. And they came to claim and assert, and still do, you got to be baptized. Now, you, you got to do a whole lot of other stuff. you got to repent, you got to believe, you got to confess. But none of it matters if you don't get baptized. Maybe they're right. Or are we saved is the question to this, or the answer to this ultimate question that we must ask and answer, what must I do to be saved? As I told you, you want the right answer to that question. You don't want the red light answer. Just ignore it. You don't want the IRS answer. Just bah. You want, you know, in, in no other endeavor, in, in nothing else, do people go to someone and, you know, I'd like to know the answer to this. Well, I don't like that answer. It doesn't make me feel good. I want an answer that makes me feel good. You go to the doctor Tell me the truth. Don't, you know, don't, I don't go there just for you to tell me how great I am. I go there to tell me what's wrong and how do I fix it. And so we want to go to the Word of God. And we want to understand, yes, indeed, the affirmation is true. We're saved by grace. And we're saved through faith. But what does that mean in light of everything else that we've seen this morning? The definition of faith. We read it earlier, and the Bible does define it for us. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, you did not see Jesus Christ crucified on the cross at Calvary, and you did not see Him raised from the dead, but you believe the biblical testimony, not only that those things happened, but those things were what God actually did in order to save you, in order to extend His grace to you and save you. This word faith in the Greek is it can be there's the, the word pistos, which is can be a noun, can be a modifier, it can be a verb. Pistuo, okay, is the verb form. And so, same way in English, we have a lot of synonyms for faith, and I think they're helpful. We can talk about trust. That's a good word. Rely or reliance. We mentioned the ad for the bank, Capital One, if you don't know who that was. I believe that bank exists. Okay, I believe they exist. But I also believe that the Regions Bank down here on the corner of Deerfoot exists, and that's where I take my paycheck each week to deposit it. There's a difference in the belief Okay, I believe one exists, but I believe in one 
and I utilize them as my bank. There's the idea of surrender. The, the, the idea of I give up everything else to rely upon and trust in what you've done is sufficient for my salvation. To, to rest, to, to receive, even to follow and confess. Over the course of history, theologians have tried to kind of tease out faith, and uh, they came up with this threefold division that faith involves, and this is Latin, and I'll explain it in just a minute, notitia, a census, and fiducia. In other words, the idea that the intellect is involved, you've got to come to understand some things, and I believe you've got to understand what the Bible says about you is true, that all have sinned, and the all includes me. And we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. We have to, have to get a grasp on that intellectually. And then we have to master and own the idea that what God has done to remedy this problem that I cannot resolve, namely my sin, he's done it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I know those things. I have that knowledge. And then I agree with those things that they are relevant and applicable to my particular, my personal situation. That through faith, I can apply the benefits for which Christ lived and died for my salvation to my life. Then I trust them. I'm relying upon them. When I stand before God, all I can say is I have trusted that all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did was sufficient for my salvation. Here's a little kind of a silly illustration, but kind of one of my phobias. And I like to hunt and hike and be out in the woods, but I don't want to be eaten by a bear. That's just kind of a thing with me. You know, I'd love to go fly fishing in Montana or Alaska or something like that, but I just don't want to be eaten by a bear. Maybe that doesn't bother y'all, but it just kind of... So imagine... I'm on one of these great wilderness treks, and I'm being chased by a bear. Now, if one of y'all's with me, I don't have to unrun the bear, outrun the bear, right? I just got to outrun you, okay? So, but anyway, I'm running from the bear, and I come to an enormous gorge. That thing is 500 feet across. It's 300 feet deep. There's a river at the bottom just a raging, roaring river with rocks everywhere and a sheer cliff on each side. But there is a 12-inch bridge that spans those 500 feet across that gorge. I'm scared to death of the bear. I don't want to face him. That's a hopeless situation. Now, most of you that know me know this. I have a fear of heights. If I were to step out on that 12-inch plank, now I'd do good to walk a 12-inch board here on the floor, not fall off of it, just be honest with you. But to step out with a 300-foot sheer drop, my knees, my legs would literally collapse. I would be so anxious and so nervous that, I mean, I would step and, and it, scared to death, bear behind me bridge to get away from the bear in front of me. And so what do I do? I've got one choice. Just suck it up buttercup time. I step out on the bridge. 
I don't know if I can do this or not. If I fall, I can't go back. The bear's standing there, you know. Don't know if I'm going to make it. One step, one step, one step, and I make it. Didn't know if I was going to make it the whole time. But guess what? In the middle of that gorge, in the middle of that gorge, amidst all my doubt and all my uncertainty, what was holding up the entirety of my weight and what was I trusting as my singular hope for escape from the bear? That little 12-inch span. Now, let me kind of flesh out that little analogy. I, tr- I, I didn't want to trust it, but I didn't have any choice. I trusted. And I was very weak in my trust, but I trusted the right object. Here's the thing. Since the bridge is Christ, represents Christ, me stepping out on it represents faith. You know what I didn't see? It was invisible, but it was there the whole time. There were two walls on each side. One of them was the Word of God, and one of them was the Spirit of God. And you know what? I couldn't have jumped off that bridge if I'd have wanted to. I couldn't couldn't have fallen off. I didn't know it was there. But every time I went, oh, something nudged me back to center. And I go, oh, and something nudged me back to center. I didn't see it, but it was there and got me across, delivered me from the bear, and allowed me to cross to safety. That's, again, may not be the greatest analogy in the world, but do you see what I'm saying? My whole weight, my everything was invested in that little 12-inch, 500-foot board. And so, our faith has to be demonstrated. We don't have time to flesh it out completely today. But in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul uses Paul as an illustration of the man who believed God and it was credited to him for his righteousness, even before he did all the things that God commanded him to do. He believed God and God trusted him. James picks it up. And this gets back to one of those things that's hard to unravel. says what? Faith without works is dead. And, then he, and, he, fl- and he explains it. He says what now? Now, you say you have faith. And I say, you know, I have works and all of this. And, and here's the thing. I will show you my faith by my works. You show me your faith without works. It's impossible for those things to exist. Faith is vital. It must be fruitful. It's living. It must be productive. And so there is this necessity of faith. It's the real, revealed will of God. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It is the singular instrument through which salvation is conveyed. And again, it is always in the presence of this thing we call repentance. They, they're, they're not the same. They're distinct. We're saved by grace through faith, but the faith that is alone does not exist in a vacuum. It is accompanied always by this business of repentance. It's always its constant companion. And here's the thing for church folks. You have to repent of your good works. You've heard me say this before. If you think 
that taking the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, if you think being baptized a few years back, if you think walking down the aisle, if you think being a good person, if you think giving uh, your tithes and offerings, if you think any of those things merit salvation, you need to repent of that because they don't contribute. It is faith and faith alone. It is an initial and it is an ongoing faith. How do you know? And this is what drove me crazy. Did I really, really believe that? I mean, did I, did I really? I mean, did I just kind of, sort of? Did, did, did I really? I mean, you know, when I did the deal, when I knelt beside my bed in my bedroom at 15 years old, did I really mean it? Did, did, was I sincere? I mean, within a week, I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of being able to discern that particular moment, in my, I mean, it drove me nuts. How do you... No, if that initial faith is genuine faith. One, re- one way is to know I know better today than I did then how true it is that the only thing I've got is Jesus. That's all I've got. That's, that's, I'm, I'm more aware every day that, that there's nothing else for me to rely. I'm forced by my own life to rest in Jesus Christ. And here's the, the dangerous thing. There's a bi- biblical warning regarding false f- faith in the parable of the soils in both Luke and Matthew. In, in Luke's gospel, the soil that is described as the rocky soil is t- said by Jesus himself to illustrate those that believe for a while. And then in times of testing, they fall away. They did not truly believe, as the old cliche is, a faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Okay? And, and so, but, but, but as life goes on, and, and whether it's persecution or the affliction of prosperity, they just lose interest. They just lose interest. And, and they, they are not interested in the things of God. Paul warns about those that would shipwreck their faith in Second Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.19. Their names are Hymenius and Alexander. He says they made a shipwreck of their faith. Now, I'm not, I would like to have more information. I don't know what happened to these guys. I don't know what they did. But he said he handed them over to Satan. That they no longer looked like believers, so he handed them over to Satan so they would learn their lesson, to be taught not to blaspheme. And so, as I've told you many times, I think the prayer for every believer every day is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And he will. You know, some of you have seen this little Paul Washer clip. I think it's really interesting. He talks about Jacob and Esau. And, you know, kind of, man, Esau had good life. He got rich. He got fat and sassy. What'd Jacob get? God beating the tar out of him every day of his life. You know how if you had real faith? God constantly applying his loving rod to your life because you're a son. And so we can see as we've emphasized this source of faith is the work of God's grace. It's the but God. 
It is the, we are made alive through the working of regeneration. And as I've told you many times, I believe regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration is the root of faith. Faith is the fruit of regeneration. If you do not get that right, then all, all your methodologies about doing all of this stuff, you can, make, you can make an excuse for because you're getting people to do what they need to do. And I'm telling you, only God can get people to do what they must do. Okay? So there's a big difference in conviction there. And so, faith is effective in that the regeneration that was at work is actually the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It attaches us to the benefits of Christ, and this faith rejects any competitors and any additions to it. And one of the problems that I believe we've got in Baptist life is that bait-and-switch business. Why not talk to people about being born again, having faith, repenting, being converted, versus, well, you need to walk down that aisle. You need to pray that prayer. You need to do this, that. Show me in the Bible how that in any shape, form, or fashion is a synonym for repent and believe. Make, make the case that that is a parallel experience, that they mean the same thing. And the problem is, if, if you're a member of a Baptist church, with few exceptions, and again, you never want to say all and Baptist in the same sentence, okay? But the vast majority, 95%, 98%, they have been told that if you'll do this, that will result, okay? That's what they've been told. Whatever the deal was, if you'll do this, that, and they did that. But yet what? Are they born again? Just one statistic. I Googled it this week, so it's got to be true. It's on the Internet. Baptists claim 13 million, I think 13.8 million members. You know, how, you know what the average attendance is across the Southern Baptist Convention? 3.8 million people. 30% of our membership thinks it's a priority to be in a church. Now, again, I, I could go on and on, but I'm not. All right. The result of faith, we've already seen this. We are saved, our text says, to good works. It's not a result of our works. We can't brag about being saved, but we're God's workmanship, and He, we has, he has fashioned us to do that which is pleasing to us because we are new creatures that produce fruit, who have the law written upon our heart. We can't go back. Let, let me give you, and probably most of y'all here were not, my guess is, I don't know, horrible, terrible sinners doing all kinds of miserable things. Okay, probably. I doubt that most of you were just normal knotheads like I was. Okay, all right. But just imagine for a moment, if you will, living a debauched life. Just, just you know, I, I want to go out and I want to, you know, be involved with substances and I want to be irresponsible. I want to be immoral. I, I, I want to just, you know, kind of just be divorced myself. I want to drop out of the church. You can't do it, can you? I mean, you can't do it. I mean, you... I, I mean, you might for a second or two, but I'm just saying, you really can't do it. You go, well, no. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I can't. Why? Because the law's been written on your heart. The law's been, you can't, you, 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 would, you couldn't, you wouldn't go back and you couldn't go back. So, 
A key to understanding what faith is and what it is not. I think you can survey the gospel invitations. Jesus called for repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He told Peter and Andrew to follow me. He told the, uh, the uh, people at the, ser- not the ser- yeah, Sermon on the Mount to enter by the narrow gate. He also said to build the house on the rock. He told everyone to follow him. He described those who will be saved as those that endure to the end. He called upon those who heard him to take up their cross and follow me, to deny yourself daily. He called upon those to acknowledge him before men. When Peter confessed him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, upon that rock, upon that confession, I will build my church. He told people they must turn and become like little children. All of those things help us to flesh out. Those were all evangelistic invitations that illustrate and define what it means. What it means to believe unto salvation. To be sure of your salvation. It is a faith that unites us not only to the benefits of Christ, but to the very power of Christ a power to do good works, a power to believe unto the end, a power to to rest, to take the yoke of Christ upon us and find that burden easy. Do you really believe? Do you have a hunger for His Word, a love for the fellowship of the people, a desire to worship privately and publicly, a hate for your sin? Do you see, maybe even sometimes in the meagerest amount, the fruit of the Spirit and peace, joy, love, etc.? Those things point to the reality of a faith. A trust that Jesus' words are true. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. They will be mine. I will raise them up at the last day. It's a faith that confesses, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed, I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves, that this ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help us all. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word for us. It is a word that it challenges us. And sometimes it's, it's, it is difficult to unravel exactly what you mean by what you have said. But I believe, I believe the way has been made clear that by the testimony of your word, the witness of your spirit, the work of your spirit and those who have gone before us and are with us now, that you guide us into the truth as to what it means to believe, to rely upon you and nothing or no one else for the salvation that we desperately need. May we honor you as we commemorate, as we remember that which you have done for us on the cross at Calvary. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.